Hey, it's David, and welcome to the Tonebase Classical Guitar Podcast. Some wonderful new lessons on Tonebase.co, including an insightful lecture from the composer Steve Goss on Benjamin Brenton's monstrous nocturnal, which was filmed on site at the desk in the house that Benjamin Brenton used to live at and compose this wonderful work. If you're still not a member of Tonebase, use the promo code PODCAST-3 for $15 off your subscription and to unlock hundreds of lessons. Really happy to have Brian Head on the show today. He was one of my teachers at USC Thornton School of Music. Wonderful, well-rounded musician altogether. He's the artistic director of GFA, composer, arranger, and the guitarist for the Los Angeles Philharmonic and LA Opera. I want to jump right into things. This is a wonderful guitar duo by Dushan Bogdanovich, uh, recorded uh, with Brian and Matt Greif, who I featured back in Season 3. This is the third movement of Canticles. Some people may not know is you are the classical guitarist for the LA Opera at the Los Angeles Philharmonic. That's just amazing. What an experience that must be. Yeah, no, that's a real thrill for me. And I, I should hasten to add the uh, there's a couple of us who do this work, and the 
longest running and, and uh, a real institution in Los Angeles that does uh, a lot of the plucked string playing for Ellie Phil and Ellie Opera is a guy named Paul Piano. And Paul is a terrific uh, guitarist and mandolinist and uh, plucked string player in general. Uh, and he is also well-known for doing musical theater. And very mm-hmm. often that position is a musical theater position because it's sort of a doubler, the kind of person that plays electric guitar and classical guitar and banjo and mandolin and yeah. ebo and whatever. And I think traditionally um, that there was also a fairly good relationship between those two kind of jobs because typically the orchestra work would be pops playing. You know, so suddenly you would need a rhythm section uh, just to do a pops concert. And it wasn't so much new music. But in the last generation, so much of the music that orchestras, particularly forward-looking orchestras like L.A. Phil are doing, is new music that is not really in the typical skill set of an electric guitar player or someone who does musicals necessarily. Uh, You're going to have more of an avant-garde a take on things, whether it's just rhythmically with it, uh, you know, the, the, the pitch material might be atonal or might be, you know, really out. Um, and so you kind of need someone with more of a classical guitar, new music background, yeah. but you need someone who also has a lot of commerce with, uh, first of all, playing with a conductor, which is a whole nother thing mm-hmm. from what our species tends to do. Uh, and not only that, somebody who uh, probably can play something other than, you know, a really nice fat tone on a uh, on a classical guitar, because in fact, so much of the work that I do with LA Phil is not on classical guitar. Yeah, uh, most of it's either electric or steel string, or um, or like I'm doing next week with a San Francisco uh, mandolin. So. Uh, it's, it's been, it's been terrific, but Paul has been, uh, doing this since the, the eighties. And I arrived in Los Angeles and started doing this, um, about a decade after that, um, uh, with him. So oftentimes, and this is a, a wonderful thing. There's, you know, we're, we're usually soloists in the midst of this sea of, uh, of players, but there's very often uh, two guitar parts or a mandolin in the guitar oh, or okay. whatever. And so I've, I've been uh, able to do a lot of, uh, of, of things that way too. Yeah. So you've been doing this since... Uh, well, When did you start yeah, officially? I, I, think I, I think my first L.A. Phil gig was uh, 2002 or three. Okay. It was actually before uh, Disney Hall was, was completed. Oh, okay. Um, and it's actually an interesting story. Oh, or you can be the judge of that, but uh, it's a story. Um, I was teaching at UC Santa Barbara, so it's probably before 2003, might have been even 2001. And uh, the head of the composition department there was a guy named uh, William Kraft. And William Kraft was a principal uh, timpanist with uh, the LA Phil for many years. He was assistant conductor, and he's a, a quite well-known composer. And he was one of the founders basically of the Green Umbrella series, which is a groundbreaking new music series that the LA Phil did. So he was my colleague at UC Santa Barbara and uh, he had written some guitar music and uh, that I recorded for him and so on. And uh, he got a commission with the LA Phil to write a concerto uh, for 
a more unlikely instrument than guitar. It was an English horn concerto. English horn concerto. Wow. <clears throat> you know, those are a dime a dozen, right? And uh, English horn is a, a famously quiet mm-hmm. instrument. It has a relatively restricted range. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful instrument, but it's not really a virtuosic instrument and so on. And so the question is, what uh, should he do? And um, uh, he asked me uh, for some, uh, well, not really advice, but, he, but whether uh, I had any ideas. And I uh, immediately thought of Takamitsu, and he's written this beautiful piece for is essentially a concerto for English horn and guitar, and so uh, and when you say concerto for English horn and guitar as a duo with orchestra, yes, exactly. Oh, I didn't know about yeah. that. And he has uh, Takamitsu has two beautiful concertos, uh, uh, both of which were actually premiered, or uh, the premiere recording, I should say, was Esapekka Salonen, uh, who was going to be the conductor of this um, English horn concerto Bill Kraft was doing. And uh, Salonen did these with the London Sinfonietta, I believe, but um, and with John Williams, you know, expertly playing these parts. And they are exquisite pieces. In fact, I would say, I would shout out that they are probably the most deserving concertos I can think of uh, in the latter half of the 20th century uh, that should be played over and over and over again. Uh, that aren't. And they're difficult. They require a large orchestra. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're difficult for the orchestra. But they're um, uh, the most beautiful uh, ex- sort of examples of Takamitsu. I can think of uh, beautiful for the crowd. It's like Debussy uh, sort of textures and um, should be played. So I, I showed him the, these pieces in the score and he got the idea to write a concerto for uh, chamber groups. And so um, he decided to have three movements with three different groups. And one of the movements was English horn, alto flute, and guitar. Hmm. So I thought, that's really cool. And then he said, so Brian, uh, are you a member of the union? And I said, uh, no, I don't really need to be, you know. And he said, well, uh, you better get your, your membership because I'd like you to play the concerto. And I said, uh, with whom? And he said, with L.A. Phil, uh, a few more months. And that was my introduction to that whole thing. Wow. And so my first note with that group was um, s- sitting out front. Yeah. <laughs> playing a concerto with Salon and staring me in the eye and <laughs> giving me a downbeat. That's uh, pretty intimidating for a classical guitarist. Yeah. Never uh, being on a stage quite like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I can't imagine the pressure. I remember hearing you telling me stories of playing Mahler with, uh, the great Dudamel conducting. That's right. Remind me, which symphony is it with the mandolin? Yeah, the mandolin and guitar part is yeah. in uh, Mahler 7. So uh, uh, Dudamel, Gustavo Dudamel, has such a prodigious uh, memory and sort of capacity, really, for music um, that uh, he, uh, well, he, he can take on a great number of, pe- of, of projects uh, that and and have them memorized, um, and uh, and somehow marshal the forces to do these things in quick succession. For example, he conducted the full Mahler set, uh, the nine symphonies memorized, all of them, uh, all of them in the space of a kind of a, a couple of months over wow. which you know he did them all, 
And um, that's crazy. That's crazy. But then he also decided, they decided a few years ago to do th- three late Mozart operas, one each at the end of each season. Um, and Don Giovanni, um, therefore, was one of those. And uh, to stage it in Disney Hall, it's not an opera house. And they had all of the action on the normal stage, and they built the orchestra up, basically up a floor. Uh, and you had to sort of walk up these stairs. It was this mm. very futuristic kind of like, uh, you know, Battlestar Galactica-looking <laughs> set. And everybody was in, uh, I mean, all the actors, uh, the singers were in these the uniforms and so on that looked very space age. And uh, the question was, there's one very prominent mandolin solo in that piece. That's all you do is this one. Um, and you accompany Don Giovanni. And you are uh, serenading, you know, and so on. And <clears throat> uh, where to put the mandolin. So uh, what was weird about this was um, uh, the orchestra being behind, uh, rather than in a pit, you see, being sort of above and behind the singers, they needed closed-circuit television to even see each other. Uh, Dudamel did this all from memory, and he's cueing the singers through the TV, and he's cueing the players right there on stage. And they said, okay, let's put the mandolin next to Don Giovanni. So when the first rehearsal, I was down on the stage and I would play. But then there was such a delay between the pitzes in the uh, strings and the mandolin. uh, He said, that's too far. I can't Mm -hmm. can't do that. So how about you go up by the organ? You might know, listeners might not know that there's this famous organ in Disney Hall with Jay, uh, all of the pipes are clad in this sort of futuristic-looking wood, and they, it looks like a, the, the most giant um, bag of French fries you've ever seen. <laughs> and so there, there's this spot there. So I stood up there, and I played, and he could hear well, and it was close to the orchestra, but then it was so far away from the singer. So finally he said, okay. He said, could you memorize the part? And I said, uh, sure. He said, do you have a strap? And I said, Sure. And he said, okay, here's what you do. Uh, You're just going to walk in right before that uh, aria, and you're going to stand next to me and play it. And I can hear you well, because you'll be three feet from me. (laughs) (laughs) And then when you're done, you walk out, and that's what we ended up doing. And um, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was a little bit intimidating, but it was also really uh, warm. He's such a uh, musical person, uh, as, an, as, as, as t- talented as, as he is, he, he just exudes this sort of sense of love and enthusiasm yeah. for music. And so the other thing about it was um, his, the way that his mind works. Um, he wanted me to phrase things a certain way. There's certain rubatos he wanted and so on. So at a break, he just started solfeging what he wanted to me, you know, on the mandolin. And in other words, he had it memorized. He had he knew my that part, part memorized. And he, yeah, and he just was solfeging what he wanted, you know. So he's he's a scary talent and and just a a, a pure musician, a genius. And it's so nice to see someone with that much talent giving so much to the community and so much love. I right. mean, obviously to LA with all of his work with LA Phil, really. I mean, it was, I, I didn't know the orchestra before Dudamel, but from what I gathered, Dudamel really propelled it to the next level, arguably as one of the best orchestras in the world now. Yeah, I would say actually that job was, was Salonen's, and, and, and Dudamel inherited uh, 
this extraordinary orchestra, mm-hmm. which made this unbelievable leap. And then um, it's sort of it, it's sort of uh, like what we say sometimes uh, uh, when we hand over a very talented uh, uh, student to you know say a graduate school. We say, well, we trained them up, and now you get to enjoy them. <laughs> and I think that's kind of we did the dirty work. That's right. I think uh, I know that 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 um, you know it was a great orchestra even before Salonen, but Salonen really changed the terms entirely, and the combination of him and uh, Disney Hall, the sort of uh, the, the 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 architecture, the effect of that place on the psyche of the orchestra and the expectations. Um, those listeners who don't know Disney Hall, it's a traditionally Frank Geary style building. It's maybe the most iconic of all of his buildings. And you just see this collection of waves of metal from the outside. It's this um, uh, tremendously avant-garde asymmetrical building. And inside it's all wood and it's this sort of uh, basically a ship yeah. inside. And uh, and even in the lobbies of the that's hall, right. not even, it's not just right inside the performance hall. It's yeah, it's amazing. And, and of course, acoustics. The acoustics are, are tremendous. There's not a bad seat in that hall. You can. It's so transparent. Um, I'll never forget a, a dress rehearsal in there um, that I was just observing, where there were uh, it was Pierre Boulez conducting, and he was conducting Strauss' last songs and. Uh, there were singers, soloists on the stage next to him. And uh, we were way back. I mean, about as far away as you could be in, in that hall, which is not that far because everything's relatively close, but in the back. And one of the singers dropped a pencil while the whole orchestra was playing. And if you heard this pencil drop. And not only did you hear it amidst all of this large orchestra music, but you could immediately um, focus on where that sound was coming from. And point right to it. And so similarly, you can hear second trombone, you can hear, you know, the back of the violins, you can hear the harp. It's it's really a great hall. So anyway, Don Giovanni was um, a a good example of also um, the access that I enjoy at these times occasionally with uh, these really, truly amazing transcendent musicians and what I love about playing in the orchestra is exactly that, but not only the conductors. I mean, these players are, um, you know, the top of the world. And to be able to interact in this kind of a, you know, organism of music, it, I think it's the pinnacle of our art. You asked initially about the Mahler, and I've done the Mahler um, with, with Gustavo Dudamel, also with Esapekka Salonen, also with Michael Tilson Thomas, hmm. who I'll be doing it again with next next week. And... Um, <laughs> three of the greatest yeah, condu- right? <laughs> conductors alive. You know, like, take your pick. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm incredibly spoiled with conductors, and but they they couldn't be more different from each other. One of the funny things about the Mahler is that it's often, at least both with Salonen and Dudamel, they actually paired it with the Webern Five Pieces for Orchestra, which is this very short piece um, altogether, maybe. 10 minutes, not even. Mm-hmm. And uh, it also has a, a small guitar mandolin part. Okay, and then the Mahler. The funny thing about Dudamel is um, he played the entire Mahler, which is probably 80 minutes of music from memory. 
Yeah. But he used the music for the vapor. For that little, <laughs> for that little <laughs> piece. <laughs> uh, so Frank Zappa, as, as you know, was this incredibly eclectic musician. And he wrote a lot of avant-garde classical music. And he, and he wrote pieces. Uh, we were just talking offline about Tommy, you know, rock, famous rock opera, The Who. But uh, Frank Zappa wrote something called 200 Motels. And it was basically an opera about his experiences on the road. Yeah. And it's incredibly irreverent. And as you might imagine from Frank Zappa and mixes just sort of his style groove music with complete atonal avant-garde complexist huh. music. And it, uh, it was premiered by the LA Phil in 1970. Okay. At the Hollywood Bowl, I think with Zubin Mehta. And it was, you know, this live thing. And it was just, it was madness, you know, because you've got solo uh, singers and then you've got the Mothers of Invention, you know, his band. And then you've got this giant orchestra uh, and so on. So um, uh, I didn't realize this, but apparently Frank Zappa was one of the first sort of celebrities of Los Angeles to really welcome Salonen to Los Angeles when he first came huh. to the LA Phil and the, uh, in the nineties and, uh, uh, and they struck up a friendship. So Zappa of course passed away a, a while ago and his, uh, his family kind of put together, uh, reconstructed 200 motels and they decided to do a proper performance of it, like really get it together. Yeah. And so uh, they did that, and it requires not only his band, basically. So he had, uh, well, you know, some of the surviving members and some new people in the front, but then a giant orchestra. I think there were maybe eight horns. There were, you know, just a huge brass section and three classical guitars. Three classical guitars. And so it was me and Paul via piano and Matt Greif. And uh, we, we, put on this performance, this, you know, all this, these costumes, the, the LA master chorale. I mean, it was, it was madness and, uh, and did a recording and, uh, at Disney hall, at Disney yeah. hall, uh, which, funny, won a, actually, which won a Grammy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was talking to the guy who engineered that recording, actually, okay. Frank Fittipaldi. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, uh, he was talking about, you know, to go a bit back to the acoustics, it's actually, in a sense, it's really easy to record in Disney Hall ah. because it sounds so good. Okay. But in a sense, it's really difficult as well because what you have is what you have in that hall. Ah, right. Uh, but it, it's... Uh, you can't really mani manipulate the sound as yeah, well. It's, yeah, it's very... But luckily, as we've said, it's just an amazing hall. Yeah. And uh, do, do you know the story about Frank Geary? And I, I forgot the name of the president for LA Phil at the time, but the first time they heard music in that hall... Uh, I don't know that. I'm I not saw, sure what the story is. Yeah. So I saw Hilary Hahn uh, perform with Ellie Phil. I forgot what it, it was a contemporary concert. It was very good. And then she played some Bach as an encore. And they had like a post concert talk. It was their kind of Friday evening, sure. less formal concert. Yeah. And they have not, not really a QA, but kind of a fun post concert conversation. And the uh, the host of that conversation or the interviewer was talking about how he absolutely loved that Hillary played some Bach at the end because it reminded him of this story. 
apparently when the hall was still very much under construction, I mean, you needed hard hats uh, to walk in and everything. No seats were constructed or anything, but it was the first time you could actually walk across the stage uh, properly. They decided, okay, we want to hear it. So they called up the concertmaster at the time. And Frank Geary and the president of L.A. Phil were sitting in the very back, or I guess standing, <laughs> in yeah. the very back of the hall. And the concertmaster went on to play some of Bach's solo violin works. And apparently these two full-grown men were holding hands and just <laughs> weeping in the back because it was just so beautiful. Oh. <laughs> I can't even imagine what it was like, especially for Gary, who designed that hall from scratch to hear it for the first time. That's right. Of course, Suzuki was the acoustician that he or, worked yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you might know that they created very large <clears throat> scale models of the, the hall and did a number of acoustical tests and lasers and so on. Oh, I didn't know about yes, that. Yes, in, 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 in warehouses in Santa Monica. Uh, to wow. get that tuned before they, you know, kind Did of it placed real. it in yeah. the final design. So it was, um, you know, it was a tremendous uh, undertaking, uh, not just the sort of outlandish design of the building itself, but yeah. also the tuning of the hall. And of course, you can sit in the round. You were talking the, uh, a little while ago about Rite of Spring. I, I remember... Uh, playing a concert there, something on the first half, and then the second half was Rite of Spring. I got to sit right behind uh, uh, in the seats, not more than probably 15 feet from the the percussionists, and mm. essentially be conducted by Salonen doing the Rite of right Spring. Right behind those timpanis. Right behind them. So it, it's it's a it's a it's an interesting hall because of that. I will say that um, another. Um, uh, kind of cool experience that was relatively recent with Dudamel was playing the Bernstein Mass with mm. him. That was just last year, I guess, and or maybe two at this point. And um, that was electric guitar. And there's two electric guitar parts. And uh, one of the things that Dudamel decided to do was to move the, the bands as two electric guitars and electric bass and uh, a drum set. And so on, and then the keyboards, electric keyboards, and and instead of being in the back where they traditionally were, we were right in the front. So instead of concertmaster, there was electric guitar, and so I was so close I could turn uh, uh, Dudamel's pages. <laughs> and during that, and and this is a, a kind of an unwieldy piece again. Bernstein Mass has singers and soloists and you know, orchestra whole thing. And uh, and rock band, yeah, you know. And actually, um, parenthetically, my father, who's a trumpet player, played the world premiere of that piece, uh, which was at the for the opening of the Kennedy Center. Wow! Um, and uh, back in the early seventies, and uh, I didn't realize the Kennedy Center was so uh, new. Yeah, as well. it was uh, kind of in that era of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, which was the previous home of the LA Phil here, and it was. Um, but it was, you know, slightly later, so sort of late 60s, early 70s, and that kind of era of grand, you know, building kind of. Um, and uh, the funny thing with my dad uh, was that um, it, it, there's this one part, you know, uh, where the electric guitar, where my part plays in unison with the, the principal trumpet. My dad was playing principal trumpet for that. And um, it's this, di-dum, da-dum, di-dum, di-dum, di-dum. 
tira, and it has this kind of rhythm where you you know you get really want to lock into the articulation and so on. And I said, Dad, you know, I I, uh, I got to play the Bernstein Mass, you know, and there's that cool thing with the trumpet. And he, he said, There's guitar in the in the Bernstein Mass, <laughs> <laughs> and there's probably. 30 or 40 pages, you know, of the part. I mean, it's a very significant part. Oh, that is so funny. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and all he remembered was the, 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 the you know, the, the, the main character, Jesus, you know, is playing a guitar at a certain point. He said, you, you mean that part? I said, no, no, no. I mean, sure, yeah, that. But the whole thing, you know, like the part where the trumpet and the guitar play together. He had no memory of that at all. Oh, that is so funny. <laughs> but, but the th- other thing about Dudamel in that case was that I was able to see him work really close. And and he talks to you and so on. And there was this one funny part where there is a pre-record that Bernstein asked to always be this originally pre-recorded thing. It's sort of this uh, rustic, woodwindy kind of sound, like maybe shepherds, you know, playing on pipes kind of sound. And it's a little out of tune. I mean, it's sort of supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> when it in the first rehearsal, when it happened, um, I, without thinking, I just sort of, you know, I was startled, you know, because it's kind of loud and it's out of tune. And, and I, I kind of, you know, just made a facial, you know, uh, uh, taken aback look. And he did the same thing. And he looked at me and, and he sort of exaggerated, like, wow, that's out of tune, you know. <laughs> and then from that point forward, all the rehearsals and all four performances, each time that would happen, he would look right at me and he would sort of open his <laughs> eyes like, whoa, this is happening. And he was just so, he is so friendly to everybody, yeah. you know. Uh, the other thing about that piece that I noticed was how gorgeous his baton technique is. Well, he holds it in a very interesting fashion. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like he hardly holds it. It's, it's, it's. It, you can't see this on the microphone, but he's holding it between his index finger and his thumb in a way that feels like it should just fall out at any moment. And right on the cork. Yes. Because, I mean, I, I'm no conductor, but from what I gather... The cork kind of goes a bit more in the palm, right? Than the can do, I guess. Yeah, sometimes some conductors. That's right, and and he's holding it that way. And what that means is then that he can control the 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 way the tip moves independently from his hand. So he gets two, and of course, a lot of conductors do this, but I've never seen it so beautiful and so up close, where he's say moving down but the tip is sort of moving up. And oh. this gives a very different feeling of, you know, it's, it's much less aggressive emotion. And there's the thing about Bernstein Mass is that it's considered a, a, a somewhat flawed piece. It's, it's a little bit indulgent, like some of his music was, and like his kind of personality was. So people wonder, okay, it's not a, quite a masterpiece, but it's, ugh, it's almost, but you know. And one of the indulgences is the length of the coda. It's just, it goes on and on and on. And one of the magical things that I noticed over the course of the four performances was that rather than me feeling that the coda was getting longer and longer, usually if something's kind of bad, that it's going to get worse, you know, if Mm -hmm. you listen to it over and over again. Uh, I mean, the playing was exquisite, the singing, there's a boy soprano, you know, he did great, you know, all this stuff, but it's just come on already. You know, why is it so long? But Dudamel figured out with his bow, t- his, his baton technique, which I guess is like bow technique, to, to really change the, that moment, that, that extended coda 
and and somehow hone in on it and change the way it was played. And by the by the Sunday performance, it was perfect. It was not too long. It was not too short. It was a genius length. Hmm. He turned Bernstein into the perfect structuralist wow. by the end. And he did it with this unbelievably delicate bow tech, uh, baton technique that you're talking about. Yeah. So it was it was really uh, again one of those uh, best seat in the house. Yeah. Know? And that's what I what one I of those love magical about, moments. What I love about those experiences. Now, along with all your work with L.A. Phil and Opera, you're also quite a dedicated composer with solo performances and whatnot. How, when did you begin composing? Was that early on when you first started the guitar? Yeah, you know, I, I actually um, uh, didn't compose early on, although I played in a rock band uh, when I was, you know, in junior high and high school and so on, and we would write All songs. All right, Strat or Les Paul? No. Oh, Les Paul. <laughs> okay, thank you. All the way, Les Paul. <laughs> And by the way, I bought a gold top deluxe when I was uh, 13 years old, and that's really the only electric guitar I've ever owned. And I play that. I play that in the Bernstein Mass. And what year is it? Uh, 1977. Oh, okay. If it was a 59, you'd be retired. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But still, they're beautiful guitars. Beautiful instrument, yeah. and I love that. You know, sustain and and the sound and all of that. Um, yeah. So we would write songs and so on, um, but. When I went to school, when I went to college, I, I studied math and physics as well as um, guitar and um, uh, was not thinking of myself at all as a composer. But while I was in school, I would just write some things. So I wrote some, a little bit of music, um, but just, just for fun. And one of those pieces actually was, a, was a, quite a long sonata for trumpet and guitar because my dad and I played a lot together. And so when I graduated, um, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm sort of enjoying this composition thing. And I took a couple of years off before coming to California and um, uh, studying at USC. And I worked on composition a little bit uh, more seriously. Um, and so uh, I was writing these uh, short little um, solo pieces. Um, and I wrote the last one, um, when I just arrived in the late eighties okay. in Los Angeles and it became what, what's called sketches for friends. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it for a student of Bill Kennengeiser's, um, or I guess I, I dedicated the set. Each piece is for a different friend. And that last one, Brooklyn Boogie is dedicated to my high school guitar teacher, John Albertson who was teaching at Catholic University in downtown uh, Washington, D.C., and I would study with him there, and I would take the, uh, the metro down to the Brookland Station, which is right outside CU, and I'd take my lesson and then come back that way. And um, so I called it Brookland Boogie because we would divide our lessons um, half and half classical and jazz. And so um, we would, I would work on, you know, whatever, Ponce or Targa or Bach. And then, then we would work on um, soloing and, you know, chord melodies and stuff like that. And sometimes we would just trade eights. And, um, and so Brooklyn Boogie is sort of an homage to some of the trading eights that I would do with, with yeah. John. Uh, so anyway, I, I uh, dedicated the whole piece, though, as a set to Hazel Ketchum, dear friend of mine, about the only person I knew in L.A. when I first arrived. Mm -hmm. And she and her husband, John, um, were um, kind enough to let me couch surf on their, in their apartment 
for the first couple of uh, months that I lived here. And I, I wrote that piece in their living room. Yeah. And, oh, wow. And so she played it uh, on, her, on a recital. Uh, she premiered it. Hazel did. And then, uh, but Bill learned it as he was teaching it uh, to Hazel. And he thought, hey, this is, this is maybe something I could, I could keep playing. And so right when he was doing all of his Concert Artists Guild concerts and really uh, starting his big solo career, um, I was lucky enough to have him take that piece on. So that kind of yeah. gave it a life. Um, I've heard him describe uh, that piece saying his student brought in this really neat composition by guitarists he didn't know at the time. Yeah. And then before he knew it, that guitarist was studying with him. And then before he knew it, that guitarist was then his boss at USC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how things go sometimes. That's right. You know, strangely, that piece is, um, is you know, kind of uh, uh, vernacular little vignettes, you know. And, and I always felt um, um, like... It wasn't sort of, you know, the super serious composition that I was trying to do at the time. I kind of separated it in a way. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember my teacher at the time, Stephen Hartke, was saying, you know, no, this is great. You need to, you know, you need to lean into this. And I really, I, it took me a long time to understand that. Um, and, uh, uh, but it, 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 it actually is my voice, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it wasn't like I needed to grow out of it or, yeah. or do something different. And so all of my music, whether it's abstract or, or not, is basically it's the same and the same guy. Tell me about the Kaleidoscope project yeah. uh, with your concerto on that CD. And, and, well, I guess you can explain it. But for those of you who don't know this CD, I actually played an excerpt of it, uh, Bill, playing... Uh, Bogdanovich for his episode last season. Yeah, it's a CD of four, or six, six different yeah. concertos, concertos, yeah. or concerti, concerti, I guess, concerti yeah. <laughs> with cacti in the no, um, <laughs> that's <right>. octopi. <laughs> is it octopi or is it just octopuses? I don't know. Yeah, it's a, it's, that's kind of the perennial question we all, we all have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, with the USC faculty playing on it, and you've got one of your concertos uh, yeah. out yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. With Scott playing it, right? That's right, Scott Tennant. So uh, this is a project uh, that we did uh, with Doberman Epon with Paul Garretts. Before he died, he was the great um, uh, leader of this sort of fearless publisher in, uh, in the Quebec area um, for a long time, and it's published a great deal of music and produced... CDs and so on. And he's always been very interested in new music. And uh, so we launched this project um, to commission concertos that would then be played by the USC faculty. And it morphed over the years when we were kind of conceiving it in different ways. But what ended up happening is um, we commissioned a piece uh, uh, for each faculty member. So Jim Smith, uh, played a beautiful piece by recent graduate at that time, Steve Gates. And Bill played uh, this beautiful concerto uh, that Dushan Bogdanovich had written called Kaleidoscope. And um, I played a concerto, gorgeous concerto by Donald Crockett, who is the chair of the composition program at, mm -hmm. at USC, and also the conductor of the new music ensemble there, which we call Thornton Edge. 
And uh, I wrote uh, a concerto for Scott Tennant. So that was the core. And then we also had two other pieces. Uh, Doberman had recently published a piece by Simone Iannarelli, the uh, Italian uh, composer living in Mexico. Uh, and we brought in Martha Masters, who at that time was also doing some teaching oh, at USC. Okay. So she played, gorgeously played this piece by Simone. And then uh, we rounded it off with a beautiful piece called Prayers, uh, which is a two-guitar sort of concerto with strings um, that I played with Bill. Oh, okay. So that was that made it six. Yeah. Um, and we did a, a performance of all six. Uh, in one concert? In one concert, wow. yeah. Wow. And uh, it was epic. Uh, and the orchestra you know, did beautifully. You know, it's hard to play all this new music. It, mm -hmm. You probably heard from the other podcast, Kaleidoscope is a... Uh, just a you know a sea of polyrhythms, mm -hmm. uh, and you know they 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 killed it, and Bill killed it, and um, so and then we recorded it over the course of the next day, yeah, um, at at uh, on site there at Newman Recital Hall at USC, but um, my piece uh, it's called a fanciful plaint, is um, an homage to Jim Smith, mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, he had always said that um, I should orchestrate uh, the solo piece that I wrote for Scott Tennant in his Pumping Nylon book. It's a piece called Plaint. It's this sort of uh, stu it's compositional study in a two-note motive. It's just, like, just a C, a stretto of uh, this two-note motive. And um, uh, so I, uh, but I never did, you know, it took me a long time. And, and finally I, I, I capitulated and uh, wrote this concerto that has that in the center of it. Um, but it's basically sort of this idea of this, um, this peripatetic uh, musical mind, this being Jim Smith, just always energetic, just uh, this hyper-energetic person and searching mind. Uh, and uh, so there's so all this energy in this piece and, and, and so on. And then it kind of, uh, lands in this kind of much more luscious uh, plaint, and then it continues, moves back to this initial energy, and then ends with this coda that's sort of uh, an homage to him. And at the time, Jim was dying of brain cancer. We all knew it, and um, and so um, this was an homage that in, I knew would shortly be a tombow. And um, Scott plays it uh, just you know absolutely beautifully. Yeah, wow, and. You wanted Scott to play this piece, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, of course, Scott um, um, uh, is a dear friend uh, of mine, but also of Jim's, and um, uh, you know, it's a family project, basically. Yeah. And so, um, did Jim get to hear the piece before? He, he sure passed? did. Yeah. Oh. oh, that's amazing. Jim, Jim was so amazing, and we should do a whole episode about Jim. Um, but. Uh, uh, he he underwent two surgeries uh, for this this brain tumor, and um, uh, this concert was in between the two. Um, but even after the second one, the second one was in very late June, I guess. In fact, we heard about it that he would have to go in for emergency surgery during a, the GFA in 2010 in Austin, Texas. I remember hearing uh, the news, and uh, we flew back visit him in the hospital. Four days later, he played a July 4th concert live on the radio 
uh, for the, L- the LACMA, L.A. County Museum, um, and uh, played the heck out of it. Like it was nothing. Like it was nothing, you know, and he had this sort of Frankenstein scar, you know, uh, above his ear. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many stories about Jim, but Jim had that kind of uh, boundless energy. Yeah. Um, and will, you know. J- it was kind of funny because Jim... Um, has sort of a legendarily good ear. It had perfect pitch, but he's but beyond that, sort of had this. Um, it's hard to explain. Just sort of this curious ear, you know. And so uh, he was doing his concert with, as he often would, as chamber music with uh, saxophone, clarinet, violin, and so on. And I remember being called in the day before the concert to a rehearsal, basically to mediate uh, between his violinist, his beautiful violinist named Andre Balog. And, and Jim, because Jim was suffering from the, I think, from the, the brain tumor and, the, and the, uh, the surgery and and had lost his sense of pitch. And he was unable to tune his guitar, particularly the low register. He just couldn't really hear it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had to tune, you know, how we do, down to D and then back to E and so on. And this person who had like unbelievable ears his whole life couldn't couldn't tell when he was getting down there. And beyond that... He couldn't tell whether he was playing on the right frets all the time. It's hard for me to describe because his playing was still quite good. He was playing all this hard stuff, but sometimes he would, you know, as we do, sometimes he would be in the sixth position instead of fifth. Normally we would, you know, just get a sniff of it and we would move, but he just would play like a whole phrase, a half step off. And, and so Andre called me, you know, sort of exasperated. He said, Brian, you have to, because anytime he would mention to Jim, Jim would get upset. You know, he said, what are you talking about? I'm playing perfectly, you know. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, what do you do? You know, we're about to play on the radio. Uh, and so I came there and, 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 and had this very odd conversation with Jim about it. I said, well, d- you know, did you know what you just did? And he said, yeah, of course I do. And he said, pieces in A and you played that whole phrase in B flat. I said, well, he said, that's, that's one, one color of that piece. I mean, I think it works great. I said, okay. So... It, it is a color of it, and it sounds beautiful, but um, I think, you know, for tomorrow, you're going to want to play the version in A. So well, I, could, I could do that if you want. You know. <laughs> so we kind of resolved that. But the other thing about that concert, I'm pretty sure it was literally on July 4th, Sunday, July 4th. I'm, I'm not positive, but I think so. Uh, was, uh, again, he had this hat. He wore this kind of like, you know, Abe Lincoln kind of hat and so on. It was uh, that I had to tune his guitar. Mm-hmm. So I was there on the wings, and I would tune down to D, and then I would tune back to E, and so on hand on the guitar, and he would go. And that was uh, that was Jim. So anyway, Jim got to hear the piece, The Fanciful Plaint, and he was very, um, you know, and he uh, just sweet about it. passed several months after That's that. That's right. right, yeah. He, he passed, I guess, in September of that same year. Yeah. But what a legacy. And, yeah. And oh. to still be able to perform. Yeah. In between surgeries and not even being able to hear lower registers. And as you said, he was still playing the hell out of the guitar. Yeah, he also, I mean, this is something close to your uh, heart right now, but he also was the the organizer and and uh, solo guitar player for the uh, world premiere of the, the live recording, for, first live performance of Reich's Electric Cat. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and when he did that, it was 1990, um, uh, was he conducting or was he playing? In the- he was playing. He was playing. I forget. It might have been Don Crockett conducting. I don't even remember offhand. I'm sorry to say. Uh, but Jim was playing the solo part and I was playing the guitar one part, mm-hmm. which 
if you've played it, you know those parts are actually quite similar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <You know>? um, <clears throat> they're all fact, similar. They're it's all pretty similar. It's just yeah. a sixteenth note off. That's right. That's right. And so uh, we did that piece uh, in uh, February of 1990. And I remember that very well because it was also the uh, day, the moment, the time when I met my wife, my future wife. Um, really? Was, wow. Because on that concert, there were these legendary uh, concerts that Jim Smith did every February. He would do a concert, and they became larger and larger affairs. And so uh, on the first half of this concert, uh, uh, on which the second half included the world premiere of Electric Counterpoint, Jim played, among other things, uh, the Ponce uh, concerto, guitar concerto. And my wife was playing principal cello in the orchestra. And the, there were always these overflow audiences. And so the only way you would get a seat is because other people would, would be players. They would be in the audience and they ha would have to go backstage and then you would replace their, their seats. So uh, uh, Paula and I got sort of the last two seats next to each other. Hi, I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Paula. And we had been at school together for years, but had never really met. And, um, and that, was, that was the occasion. And, um, and so then I had to leave and play Electric Counterpoint. So I got to hear her. She got to hear me. Uh, and so Jim Smith is responsible for our having met. But that That's was beautiful. that was a kind of uh, event that Jim would put on yeah. all the time. And I heard he had quite the reception as well. Yeah, he had he had amazing uh, receptions. Um, he also would do um, f sort of famous encores sometimes with choreography. Um, and I remember after the the Reich, he uh, had he would try to include as many people as he could. So he would have this sort of very heterogeneous group on stage. And he did sort of the send up of a um, of a, a Reichian minimalist idea, but he had a friend of his um, dress up like a like you were at a prize fight at Las Vegas, and you had the you know the girl who would show okay round three, round four, and so on, and then she came out and she would have these signs with these different numbers, which indicated you know how many times we had gone through the cycle, and it was uh, you know typical Jim. Thank you, Brian, for being on the show. Please join me in two weeks for a conversation with the Grammy Award-winning microtonal guitarist John Schneider. I'm going to leave things today with Brian's recording of Dusan Bogdanovich's Prayers. This is for a guitar duo and orchestra featuring Bill Kanegeiser as Brian's duet partner and the USC Thornton Edge Ensemble. I'm David Steinhardt, and we'll see you next time for the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. <laughs>